Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 525 with Tom Douglas. Uh, if, if I'm out there just trying to maximize every dollar for me rather than for my team then or for my customers, then uh, I'm a schmuck. Uh, and that, to me, is where capitalism goes off the rails. Are you ready for It Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. You got to check out Wisetail, a premier learning management system. Wisetail is a forward-thinking training and communication platform built to engage today's workforce. Wisetail is trusted because it grew up alongside some of the most recognized restaurants in the industry. This has helped them shape their product and its functionality through real-world feedback and rigorous testing. Wisetail can help you scale your training initiatives across all locations while empowering your employees to take control of their learning and their professional growth. To learn more, head over to www.wisetail.com slash unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. And if you use my links, you'll get your first three months free after signing up for a year contract. Again, that's wisetail.com slash unstoppable. Wouldn't it be great if you could play music directly from your Spotify account in your own restaurant without worrying about being pinched by the music police? Well, guess what? With Soundtrack, your brand, you can. Unlike Spotify Premium, YouTube, or Apple Music, Soundtrack, your brand is licensed for business use. And with SoundtrackYourBrand.com, you can import your favorite music from Spotify and share them directly with your guests. This deal typically goes for $26.99, but if you act now, you can get this deal for $19.99 per month per location for life. Get on it. Again, that's soundtrackyourbrand.com or find the banner in the show notes. So with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Tom Douglas. Tom, are you feeling unstoppable today? Every day I feel unstoppable just because, uh, you know, when you get up in the morning, uh, uh, it is, uh, it's your job to get up and show up every day. And that's what I do. And that's a uh, uh, at the end of the day, uh, I always feel like nobody can out-effort me. And so if I'm going to put in the effort, I'm going to win and be unstoppable. Yes, I love it. I can't wait to dive into more of your business philosophy. But uh, just real quick, let me fill the, the listeners in with who we're talking to right now. Uh, Tom Douglas has worked or been working in the Northwest Cuisine since 1984, opening his first restaurant, Dahlia Lounge, in 1989. For the last 30 years, he's made a name for himself, opening 13 full-service restaurants, an event space, a cooking school, a catering company, a product line. He's also a golfer, a wine collector, author, and he hosts his own radio show. Man, I don't know how you have the energy to do all this. Uh, in 2012, he was uh, named James Beard Outstanding Restaurateur and can be found at any one of his restaurants, giving uh, at any given day, putting in the work along with 1,000 of his coworkers uh, to create this successful restaurant group. You guys are doing incredible stuff. I can't wait to dive into your story, but let's get that motivational, <laughs> inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Uh, well, you know, we live the the passion every day of deliciousness served with graciousness, and it's part of our mission statement, uh, and it uh, coincides with other lines of that mission statement that uh, to be respectful and to respect each other and our coworkers, uh, to uh, earn enough dollars to be uh, fabulous citizens in our community, to give back to our community, uh, and it, it, all said and done, it's deliciousness with graciousness. You know, uh, 
we have so many great role models in Seattle of people who do it right, like the Nordstrom family, Starbucks. Uh, you know, Starbucks is one of the first companies to ever offer part-time uh, benefits, right, uh, for all their workers. I did not know that. Yeah, really uh, great role models uh, that we have around this town. Uh, so I, I just am along for the ride. And by the way, I've been here since 77 working in fabulous Northwest restaurants. I've only had my own since 89. Okay. So we're going to dive into kind of where it all started for you. But real quick, uh, what is graciousness to you? Really get into the specifics of what that word means to you, graciousness. Well, graciousness is how you live your life. Uh, You're either a gracious person or you're not. And uh, you can – I find it hard to fake, you know, because graciousness is one of those things that's just a natural – when somebody needs – a help with a heavy waiter tray, you know, he's just stopping you do it. When when you're out on a catering and uh, it's time for you to leave, but you can see that they're in the, in the weeds, tables and chairs need to be broken down. Uh, graciousness is stepping in and being a co-worker, a, a thoughtful person. Uh, graciousness is when uh, somebody has an allergy at the table and they're ordering their dinner and you've recognized that they're struggling with what to order and that you go back to the chef and say, listen, can we make this guy something special because... He can't eat anything on the darn menu, and you make that happen. That's a very gracious thing to do, uh, and it's um, it's not just working for a tip. It's actually working for the consumer, the customer. Uh, so that's to me, graciousness is is everything. I love it. Great way to get this thing going. And so it started for you, uh, born on the, the East Coast, 58, 20 years old. You moved to Seattle uh, in seventy seven. It was or what? yeah, I was born in fifty eight and moved in. Um, uh, I was born in Cleveland, raised in Newark, Delaware, and left when I was uh, just turning 19, 18, and I turned 19 on the road okay. in 77. And so, uh, yeah, it was an awesome trip. I had a Chevy station wagon, white <laughs> uh, Bel Air with a, a sky blue interior, and I had everything in, of that I owned in my whole life in the back of it. Kind of sounds like my life right <laughs> now. Uh, so what was going through your mind driving across the country, uh, 19 years old, just going for it? Did you have a, a purpose? Were you just trying to figure shit out? What was going on? Uh, my purpose was I didn't want to go to college. And, of course, I was the only one of eight kids that didn't go to college. And that uh, was very upsetting to my mother. It's still a black mark on her record. Uh, <laughs> and I, I did try at the University of Delaware. I tried to give them 150 grand to buy a, scholar, or buy a diploma so that my mother could die in peace. Uh, and they wouldn't sell me one. So she's still alive. I still have an opportunity uh, to make it right for her, but uh, it is a black mark. Um, <laughs> so I, I was just, uh, you know, I didn't know that I was going to stay forever. I was just wanted to see the country. And uh, the year before, I had taken a trip around the country with my older sister and as kind of a chaperone for her and her girlfriend. <coughs> if you don't know, I'm a big dude. Uh, and uh, so I, I liked it. And I, so I just got my car, drove around the country, ran out of money here in Seattle, uh, got a job cooking. And have done a few things in between, but uh, but before that, I had some pretty darn good experiences. I worked on the back of a garbage truck. I worked in a railroad repair yard cutting steel. I worked at a hotel cooking. I worked in a wine shop, a wine and liquor store in in Maryland, and just hoofing wine and stacking thousand dollar corner stacks of beer. And uh, I just I've done a lot of things. So it was in '84 where you uh, got your first like full time job. Chefing, at, yeah. chefing mm-hmm. at Cafe Sport, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, how how did you have the qualifications to chef with no real? What were you doing before to to be qualified? Well, I was a sous chef at a restaurant called the Second Landing over on an island, uh, okay. just off out of Seattle here. Uh, I worked at a restaurant called McCormick's, a big kind of fish house, and heard of it. So, yeah. um, you know, in the restaurant business, it's not really about well, at least when I was coming up first, like at the hotel in in, in Wilmington, Delaware, Hotel Dupont. 
it was still a time when you had to have an accent to get a big chef job, right? You really had to be Swiss or German or French or something. We even had a French chef at the first restaurant that I worked at here in Seattle. But um, things were changing. And um, I would say what really turned it around for me and why I got the chef job is that I'm a good person. I, I'm a good people manager, and I'm, uh, I, I have I, – nobody out-efforts me. And I'll say it probably 10 times during this interview. I get up and show up every day. And people recognize that. And that's what you need in restaurants much more than experience. You need to get up and show up and you need to lead a brigade. Uh, and so that's how I got my first chef job uh, was doing just that. So really dive into how just showing up you were able to lead as I mean, I'm sure you're doing more than just showing up. You have some certain skills that you're bringing to the table. But how did that inspire the people around you just being willing to work harder than anybody else? Well, that's helpful. When you're willing to do whatever jobs uh, out there, when you're willing to jump in and wash dishes when the dishwasher doesn't show up or it hurts his hand or when you're willing to do any job, when you show up um, when somebody calls in sick, when you pull doubles and triples and, and you're the last, the first one in, last one out, that's how you get up and show up. And I'm not saying you have to work yourself to death, but I'm just saying I wouldn't expect anything of anyone else that I wouldn't do myself. Yeah. Where did you learn this, this, this uh, I guess, dedication, this work ethic, this, these values? I have uh, I really have no idea. You know, my father was uh, a traveling salesman, left Monday morning, came back Friday, so we didn't see much of him except for corporal punishment time on the weekends. Uh, <laughs> my mom kept a list of who got how many smacks uh, when he got home with the oh, two-by-four. <laughs> uh, but um, I, I, I honestly don't know. It's just always been in my nature. It, it's, it started young. Uh, I always worked. I always had a morning paper out, an afternoon paper out. I caddied on the weekends. Uh, I worked in the liquor store. I worked full-time through high school, paid my own tuition at a Catholic high school because my parents said my grades weren't good enough, so they wouldn't pay. Uh, and nor did they have a lot of funds to pay. But uh, So I, those were my buddies. I wanted yeah. to hang with them. Well, I'm not particularly Catholic. Matter of fact, I think that cured me of any sort of religious belief. I think coming out of uh, 12 years of Catholic schooling made me realize, hardened, a hardened criminal, that uh, religion is the basis of all evil. Okay. Yeah. Um, Sister Mary Richard still has a patch of my hair. I'm sure stuck <laughs> under her fingertips. <laughs> so you're 27 years old. Correct me if I'm wrong. When you decide to open or not open, but uh, take this the chefing role uh, at Cafe Sport, I was the opening sous chef. That was in '84. So yeah, I'm around 26, 27. Okay. And, um, and I guess what I'm curious. I mean, from from '84 to I think you opened your own place, was it in 89, mm -hmm. four years, and then an additional I actually four took, years. You know, I, I, just to be clear on that, I took the Cafe Sport job in 81 Okay, with the promise that it was going to open, and then the guy ran into the financial difficulties. So I actually worked oh. in a little salad bar uh, down in the athletic club that owns that restaurant Okay, and uh, did that for a few years before we actually got the restaurant open in 84. Okay. Typically, this is where I ask if there's any major mentors you had uh in your early adulthood uh, that kind of helped form or give you the values, the, the, the influence that you needed to be able to do this work. Was there anybody like that? You know, uh, certainly there were mentors. No, nobody had to give me a value of work. That's a little bit different that I bring and share with others and ask the same of others. I'd say the mentors for me were in, in um, more in the bomb vivant category, more in the enjoyment of, Food, uh, the enjoyment of wine, uh, sipping whiskey instead of chugging it like a 17-year-old. Yep. Uh, uh, getting a good beer instead of uh, downing a six-pack of Pabst Blue Ribbon. You know, enjoying the the craftsmanship of food where it was my mentors. And uh, a chef that I used to work with named Stephen Steinbach, uh, he just retired from our company now. 
after 40 years of working together. Wow. Uh, a guy named Kenny Rader who's passed on, but uh, these were my mentors. You know, we used to spend, before I'd pay rent, I'd go with them to Portland for dinner. Or we'd drive up to Vancouver, B.C. for dinner, stay in a cheap hotel and just eat fancy, fancy food. And uh, those are what changed me mm. more than uh, the work ethic. If how? anything, I would say the work ethic that I brought changed other people. So how did this experience of, of really diving deep into the experience of this food change you? Uh, well, you know, it's, you, you just have to have your priorities, and we, I we got to be a club that uh, a couple of uh, couples, three or four couples, that would just do everything together. And when we weren't working, which we were most of the time, we'd go out and we'd buy food at markets, and we'd cook ourselves dinner together, and mm-hmm. we'd go uh, traveling together. And uh, actually, Kenny and his girlfriend and, and my wife and I uh, got married together. Oh wow! Uh, double ceremony. Uh, so it's just it's just one of those things when you find a passion, a hobby that uh, you know many people have that hobby. They come to our restaurants all the time and say, you know, we're we're on the culinary journey to hit every one of your restaurants this weekend when we're visiting from Dallas. You know, they're foodies, yeah, they're food people, and uh, it's important to them. And I think, uh, sadly enough, uh, right now what we're seeing in Seattle, I, I believe, is a little bit of a trend toward not recognizing and appreciating the craftsmanship of food and what it takes. There's just pressure to get things out fast, to make it deliverable, to do all sorts of things. And, um, you know, when you sit there at our bakery and you watch, you know, we can't do it anymore because I, I had to cover it up because of rent prices. But uh, when you were at our, when we had the artisan bakers making loaves of bread every day, uh, five to 800 loaves of bread, English muffins, hamburger buns, all that, people would just sit there and stare at the process. I love that. I love sharing that. Uh, at our farm, the process of growing a, the perfect nectarine or peach is awesome, right? And mm. you you work the tree in the fall, you, you prune in the spring, the flowering, you know, getting out there with the uh, when the frost is on and, and trying to cover them up. And I mean, just the process of that nectarine is an amazing thing. So, Tom, bring me to the the place, the time where you said to yourself, this is what I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing. I never have said that. Never have said that? Frankly, I hope that it never comes to me. (laughs) I don't like boxing myself in a corner like that. that. And, you know, I I mentor a ton of kids uh, who want to be in this business. And the number one thing I say is, like, they're coming to me at 20 years old, 23 years old. This is what I want to do with the rest of my life. It's like, get over yourself, you know. You don't know. Believe me. You're going to meet a girl. You're going to have a baby. You're going to have a dog. You're going to do all sorts of things that might change that impression. Don't box yourself into that mm. corner. And it's the same thing with a young kid coming to me wanting to open his own restaurant. If they're under 25, I beg them not to do it. And they don't quite get it because they're so passionate at this moment in time. But when you sign a 10-year lease at a restaurant and uh, you're on your, let's say, your second year of working seven days a week, things change. Right, and your passion changes, and what you might want to do. And you only get your twenties once. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, you shouldn't open a business of much any sort until you're over thirty, and you have a sense of life, direction. a sense of direction, and you've met somebody, and you've got this commitment between both of you. Because it doesn't do any good for you to be in the restaurant seven days a week, and your wife's home with the kid. Because you can't afford a babysitter, right? Yeah. The only reason you're working seven is because you can't afford to, f- to hire a cook. So then you got stress on your marriage, and next thing you know, you've sacrificed your marriage because of this and that. And Tom, yes, man, this is exactly why this podcast exists to to, to open up and get real and uh, like genuine and just mm-hmm. sincere about the realities of the industry. And any, and, I would say that about any industry. Yeah. You know, running a business is difficult. Absolutely, I have a thousand coworkers. Mm-hmm. My HR department is six people. 
you know, my 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 <laughs> payroll every two weeks is a million that's, and a half dollars. That's incredible. This is this is real life. Yeah, and. Not everything has to be that way, right? You can open up a little restaurant, but the margins in restaurants are slim, and that's the only reason I've opened up more is because I want to pay raise. Yeah, I don't want to work for the same money for the, my entire life. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to when you decide to open up your first restaurant. Again, it was back in '89 uh, uh, after about uh, five years of or yeah, about, seven years five, with the company, but five years okay. open at Cafe Sport. So what was going on in your head where you're saying to yourself, you know, why am I doing this for somebody else? Mm-hmm. I want to do it for myself. What, what happened? What no, changed? no, no. See, you're bringing some misconceptions to the table. Okay. Um, I've never once said, why am I doing this for somebody else? I'm a worker bee. I okay. work as hard for you as I work for myself. It's never been a question. There's never, you can ask any owner I've ever worked for. They will, they will say that to you in a heartbeat. I, I, it took me five years of owning my own business to make the money I was making when I left working for somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's a struggle. Mm-hmm. That's close to bankruptcy. That's yep. two years of borrowing money from friends to make payroll. Uh, that is, I wouldn't wish that on anyone, although I do think it makes me a more appreciative operator today. Uh, but at the time, I was, um, I was there seven years. They wanted to open a second Cafe Sport. Uh, there's something in me that doesn't like to do the same thing over and over. And uh, so I just saw, thought maybe this is my opportunity to move on. And so I, uh, I quit. We were the highest rated, most popular restaurant in Seattle at the time. Uh, there were full-page articles in the Seattle Times, the Seattle uh, Post-Intelligencer, uh, the Seattle Weekly, all about me leaving this, this very popular restaurant and uh, that I was looking for work. And <laughs> lo and what behold, <laughs> lo and behold, there was no jobs for me. Wow! I, I don't know why. I, I didn't feel like I was a difficult person. I never came out that I was. Maybe they all thought that they couldn't afford me. I, I don't know what Maybe it was. Overqualification or don't know. Yeah. Uh, How long I, were you trying to find work before you decided to do your own thing? Um, just a month, really. I started looking around because I wasn't getting any feelers. And okay. so I started looking around. And uh, my wife's uncle had always – he's a restaurant guy, New York City, always had wanted to bankroll us and had asked us to open restaurants many times. Uh, and it was, just, it was never a thing for me. I never wanted my own business in why that Why not way. at that point? Why, why didn't you? Why? Yeah. I, I was doing really good. Yeah. I was the highest paid chef uh, general manager in Seattle. Okay. Uh, I, there was no need for it. And then it wasn't my goal. I'm a hard worker. Yeah. So what changed? Uh, no job. And so then uh, he he's called and said that he would like to do this. Uh, first, her father did, uh, which um, when I looked into his finances, couldn't afford to lose his bankroll for us. Okay. You know, that was his retirement, and that was a pressure I did wow. not want. And I, again, in my mentorships, I always stress that. Do not take family money that can't afford it. And uh, But his brother uh, in New York could afford it. Uh, was multimillionaire, and so um, we put a budget of fifty thousand uh, dollars to out there to get and remodel a restaurant. Um, we found one; it was one hundred fifty thousand. So I uh, got him to take fifty on a balloon, fifty in debt as far as um, what they owed their vendors at the time. I took on their debt and negotiated down to a hundred thousand instead of one hundred fifty. Okay. Uh, so it had been open 11 years and had never made money. So they were pretty happy to get anything so out of it. were you kind of a, an exit strategy for these people, would you say? Yes, absolutely. Okay. He, he was the mayor of Seattle. Okay. <laughs> what are some of the benefits of being someone's exit strategy? Obviously, it sounds like some uh, negotiating power. So- you know, the only benefit for them is they don't have to write a check anymore every month. He wrote a yeah. check every month to cover his losses for 11 years. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, he was so happy not to write that check was anymore. It, was it turnkey? Did you have the equipment that you needed? Was no. everything there? No. Well, it could have been, but I okay. chose not to, which was a stupid mistake. Okay. Because I took the fifty grand that uh, Jackie's uncle uh, loaned us. Uh, he got fifty. He didn't loan it to us so much. He got fifty percent of the company. Okay. Uh, and I took it, and we remodeled that restaurant, added forty some more seats, and um, but it left us with with no operating capital, and that's a stupid first grade mistake in opening any business. Uh, but I mean, on the flip side, yes, absolutely, I agree. No operating capital. You need that runway. You need that starting capital. But it's also good to rebrand and change the feel of the restaurant that wasn't necessarily doing good. Some no. Was, no? You, you can do that in a year okay. or two when you've earned your money. Okay. Uh, because what we went through, you know, we were pregnant. We were uh, three months pregnant at the time. And uh, our daughter was born five months after we opened uh you know, no, it's just a bad idea. Okay. And it's a stress that you don't need in any part of your life. So reflecting back at that time, what percentage of operating capital would you say you should have had to start? Well, we ended up in the middle of, opened in the middle of uh, the 1990 recession, uh, 8990. Uh, George Bush Sr. came out uh, just eight months after we opened and said, yes, we are in a recession finally, because we could feel it on the ground, but the country wasn't really talking about it. Uh, uh, fine dining was struggling. And uh, I saw that coming and went ahead and opened a fine dining restaurant. I just did a lot of stupid things. So look, looking back at this time, um, you know, you're, you're kind of identifying some of the, the poor decisions you made. Any other poor decisions, things you learned the hard way that you can just drop on us as, as you know, we're going crawling? You know, you know, when we opened, we started with 42 employees at, uh, at the Dahlia Lounge in 89, November 15th. And uh, by April, we were down to 20 employees. Uh, I, some people who quit really good jobs to come work with me because I was well-known and offering fair wages, blah, 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 benefits. Uh, they all lost their jobs. Uh, those are tough things. Um, and it, it makes you a more, if at least it did for me, uh, I've always been a compassionate person. I believe in compassionate capitalism. If I'm the only one getting rich, it's not worth doing. Right? What, is, what is compassionate capitalism? Just just what I just said. Uh, if If I'm out there just trying to maximize every dollar for me rather than for my team, then, or for my customers, then uh, I'm a schmuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, to me, is where capitalism goes off the rails. Mm-hmm. And you see it when people say, I built this, you know, this, I bootstrapped this business, I built this business, I did it by myself. It's nonsense, right? There's roads to your restaurant. There's police. There's fire mm-hmm. departments. There's armies protecting our borders. Nobody does it by themselves. Mm. Uh, and so you can take that in a broad way, like in a national way, and you can also take it into your community way, right? Somebody's feeding the people that can't afford to walk through your front door. Mm-hmm. I want to be part of that. I love it. Right? That's a percentage of what I work for. And so compassionate capitalism is, is really just just being thoughtful about uh, your life, your community, your coworkers, your family. Uh, you know, is it compassionate to spend 24 hours a day at the restaurant and leave your, your significant other by yourself or by themselves with taking care of a kid? and Not too much. It's not compassionate. No, no I, I understand you have to do what you have to do to survive. And there are those moments, but you have to be thoughtful about who's your, you know, who's who's your backstop, yeah. right? Who's got your who's got your back? So, so you you spend some time really painting the realistic uh, picture of what it's like. It's tough. You, you didn't have two pennies to rub together. You had to borrow from friends in the early years, the, the first four or five years. When did things start to turn around for you? When did you start to uh, build momentum and and uh, get to the point where you were profitable? Well, I just want to say one thing. Um, about the realist part. I am a realist. Yeah. Uh, some people 
take my reality and think of it as being negative, and it really isn't. Mm-hmm. I am who I I am what I experienced in my lifetime, right? We all are. We are we're made up of our experiences. And I, I tend to be a realist. I don't uh, put my head under the pillow and think it's going to get better. It's going to get better. I work to make it better. And so I just wanted to be clear about realism in that it is not a negativity. It's just facing facts. Um, so so it got started to get better. Uh, I had been up for many, many James Beard Awards over the years. And uh, we won in 94. Uh, we I saw. won in 94. Okay. But we... Um, we were nominated earlier than that. I think uh, 91 or 92 okay. or something like that. Um, 91 maybe. And so that helped put us on the map a little bit of people wanting to try us. We were in downtown. You know, at the time it was crack crazy in downtown Seattle. We were Our restaurant was just a half block from the 7-Eleven, 24 hours where all the crackheads would hang out. Um, we had them coming through our windows, you know, being thrown in fights. And it was, just, it was, we were held up by gunpoint a couple of times in our first few years. It was, we were in a tough part of town. If there is that in Seattle, it's compared to other cities. It is quite a milk toast town in some ways. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it was crack time. We were downtown and, um, it was just a struggle. And then when that started to get better, we started paying a community block watch uh, security company. Uh, we got the Seven Eleven closed. Uh, they were just a, the source of so much angst. Uh, some of the 24-hour businesses around us closed, which helped with uh, nighttime muggings and things like that. And so um, it just started to get better. We came out of the recession. Uh, fine dining started to come back. Uh, delicious artisanal food was the order of the day. Uh, things like, uh, you know, national people like uh, Alice Water, Wolfgang Puck. Uh, you know, there's a lot of attention being paid to food and to American chefs. Mm-hmm. So did, the, did these things start to shift uh, before getting the first nods from James Beard? From, I think it was 91, 92, and 93, you got the nod. And one uh, in 94. Yeah, and then in 94, you won it. Yeah, mm-hmm. so was, were things pivoting um, before all these nods or after? Was it they during- were pivoting, but the margins at the Dahlia, you know, we were a fine dining restaurant. Margins were just... Zilch. And so we came up with a strategy, talked to uh, Clarence, uh, our investor, uh, to open a couple more restaurants and use the Dahlia as a flagship, you know, doing all the fancy, delicious things, and to open some restaurants that were more uh, appealed to a larger percentage of the dining public. Okay. So we went down to the old Cafe Sport, which is where I was the chef, and the owner there had asked me to take over the lease. And uh, it's in the Pike Place Market area. And so we knew down there there's built-in traffic, mm-hmm. uh, whereas we were just four blocks away. It was dead foot traffic. Okay. And around what time was it where you went to the second location? Just- I wouldn't say 94, 95. Okay. Was that, was that Edda's Seafood? Edda's. And okay. then uh, where you are now, the Palace Kitchen. Okay. Uh, we did two in the same year. I signed two leases on the same day. Okay. Because I had just signed a lease here at the Palace for a new restaurant. And then I got a call from the owner of Cafe Sport, and he was in bankruptcy court. And he said the judge won't approve my bankruptcy plan unless I have a tenant for the cafe sports space. Okay. And I said, well, we can't, we can't afford it. You, we talked already. We couldn't come to terms. And he said, what do you want? So I gave him my terms. He said, okay. He got approved for his bankruptcy uh, plan, and I got that restaurant, and I put – palace here i sat on this for a year while we opened at us okay so we're, we've been cruising around uh like twenty thousand feet i want to get in a you know helicopter and drop down it's like 500 feet real quick and what were th- what were the things that were happening in your business where you felt like you could leave one restaurant to go open two other restaurants how did you how did you set up the first restaurant to still be successful while redirecting your attention for those other two restaurants well like i've continued to do they're very close they're within five blocks okay uh, all of my restaurants all of my businesses are within uh 10 blocks okay so they're 
they're all walkable. And so I thought I could go back and forth. The guy who took over for me as chef at the at the Dahlia, uh, I was very confident in, and I knew what his style was. He was a terrific cook, and I just felt like we had enough uh, talent in reserve to to take this opportunity. Now I will say I'd never run multiple units before, so I don't know. I just took shot, mm-hmm. and uh, the idea of doing three was a real shot. Yeah, uh, and uh, it just it worked out. Mm-hmm. So what was it about you, do you think, that allowed you to be able to just name your price? Why, why was this opportunity coming to you? It was because well, of the reputation. He was, my, he was my owner for years yeah. when I worked there. He knew that I was going to be a good guy. And he had no other options. Mm. Okay. Was what the else? market that tight? Yeah, it was tight market. Okay. Yeah. So uh, you open these two, additional, uh, uh, these two additional locations. What's life looking like? What's going on? How, how are things? Are they smooth? Are there lessons being learned as you're going? Take us through it. Uh, of course, uh, when Edda's opened our second restaurant, it was big news in town. There were lines around the block, and you know it's just we were crushed, uh, and probably not as good as we should have been. Uh, when Palace opened, we were the only restaurant open till one a.m. in the morning, full menu. A lot of people did little late night menus, but we did one o'clock in the morning, crushed. Uh, it was awesome, and so all of a sudden I had this bustling three restaurants, and you start to think. What else do you like to do? I'm a little ADD that way. What other things are missing in Seattle? And so I started thinking about that way. So real quick, reflecting back at these three restaurants, what was going on that made you crush it? What were the things that you did right? We were good cooks. We were good to people. We had good service. Uh, They were in places that people didn't mind going, I guess. Uh, The big thing at that point was I started to see the writing on the wall that I kept giving 50% of the company away to my partner who really only invested $50,000. Okay. And so that was a concern for me, right? Um, and so one of the things in my mentorships is I, you know, when you take on a partner, you better just treasure that person and don't ever look back and say, why am I paying this guy this much money? He's not doing anything. I'm doing all the work, blah, blah, blah. Well, he had the money that you didn't have. And you just cannot forget that. Yeah. And just look at yourself in the mirror and just say, fuck you. I need this guy. <laughs> yeah, right? absolutely. So, uh, so I, Or I needed this guy. Now I don't need this. Uh, now I didn't need his money and I don't need to keep sending. You know, when, you, when you're a partnership like that, 50-50, if I take $10 out of the business, I have to send him a check for $10. Yeah. Right? So at that point, uh, I just decided that uh, to start talking to him about maybe buying him out of his position. And so his $50,000 position... Uh, six years later, I uh, got bought out for seven hundred fifty thousand. That's a good investment. How about that? That's not too bad at all. And I put him on a five year plan, and yeah. I paid it off slowly over five years. And um, he still is, you know, we're still good buddies. He eats in the restaurants for free for life. That's awesome. So uh, it's he's that that's now been. 30 years he's been yeah. eating in our restaurants for free. So you have great values when it comes to partnerships. That's coming out. What are, you, what are your feelings about partnerships? Well, I think if you can avoid them, I'd avoid them. Uh, because at the end of the day, when you're there on Friday night, you've been there since 6 in the morning, and that's now midnight, you get uh, some animosity. It's unwarranted, but it's, it's hard to help. So I think when you can afford to go without partners or at least uh, structure your partnership with buyout plans in the beginning – so that you know what your your end game is. Okay, uh, that's an important angle on setting up how you do your business plan. So, so what what other things? So setting up that buyout uh, number or percentage or whatever it is, however you're going to plan it out. What are some other things we need to do in the operational agreement, the partnership agreement uh, that most people will receive? Uh, clearly define roles. So for example, my partner was just a, a silent partner. He was just the money. He lived in New York City. I, we lived here, right? So uh, uh, that was easily definable. Um, 
he was a bit struck that he wasn't making any money out of his partnership in the first couple of years when we almost yeah. went broke. And uh, so just lots of phone calls. He was there for that. Strategy thoughts. Uh, um, but again, I made sure that he could lose the money before we started. So I had that comfort. But other things you might want to do, uh, like I said, always have uh, a game of getting out of the partnership if you're just dealing with investors. Okay. Because most of the time I have found, unless you're going to a venture capital group, most of the time it's friends and family and that um, – They'll, they'll be happy to say, I own this place, I have part of it, and then also happy if you do well enough to buy them out. They don't want to lose their money. Okay. So it's easy to get them to agree to a buyout plan in the beginning because they're just happy to get anything out of it. Yeah. There's many, many horror stories about never making a nickel or even getting your investment back in the restaurant business. So are there any other things we can do aside from creating the exit strategy, the buyout plan, uh, to uh, s- streamline that strategy, that exit strategy? Anything else you can drop on us? Well, I think uh, recognizing this is not so much about the exit, but about being successful so that you don't have to exit before you want to. Yeah. Uh, but recognizing triple net, say, recognizing uh, triple net is a number that sneaks up on so many leases, right? Triple net is typically property insurance, which you're, as the tenant, you're responsible for your square footage, um, fire, you know, whatever building, a common area, maintenance expense for the building, you have a certain amount. So, like in Seattle, in the last five years, property values have tripled. So a building that I owned just across the street for the last 12 years, uh, I bought for a million dollars 12 years ago. It just sold for $9 million. Wow. I I was 30% partnership in it. So that's all well and good. But as the tenant, I'm just on triple net without a cap. So now I'm paying property insurance uh, on a building that's worth $9 million instead of $1 million. Okay. And so that tripled my property insurance. Wow. So those are the kind of numbers that you have to kind of think all the way through your lease and and forecast through the 10 years of your lease uh, what some of the expenses are actually going to be instead of, again, putting your head in the sand and just hoping that it all works out. Okay. So you got away from this partnership. Uh, There were 50-50. How did things change once you were the sole proprietor of the restaurant group? Nothing much, really. I, I, the money I was taking out from my own self, uh, I didn't have to match to somebody else, so it let me, left me some working capital. Mm-hmm. And then as we could afford it, I don't like banks. You know, I tried a bank in the beginning, and they wouldn't loan me anything, so it kind of ticked me off. Uh, so I, we only opened a restaurant or a food business when we could afford to do it ourselves. Yes. So we're 100% self-capitalized. What's the benefit of being really diving into the, the weight of I that? don't know that there's any. A lot of my rich buddies, they, they, uh, you know, they're always loading debt on top of any asset and uh, it just makes me uncomfortable it's never been my my gig i'm not a finance guy that way so mm-hmm. uh, i just like uh, owning it free and clear it's the same way i you know when i as soon as i could i paid off my house i buy cars for cash i don't have i don't carry any bank loans to this day we're almost a hundred million dollar company and we have zero bank debt okay so uh what year was it so was any it? finance guy would say i'm crazy because <laughs> i should be using some of that yeah that uh, capital Equity, yeah. to be uh Opening other places or doing other parts other of assets, business, yeah. yeah. So, what year was it when you had uh, sole proprietorship? How how far along? I want to say ni- uh, ninety uh, six, ninety seven. Okay, we figured that out. So, you eventually, obviously, you start scaling. You to to date, you have thirteen locations, correct? Is full service, full service yeah. locations, plus the other projects you have going mm-hmm. on. Uh, from a, an entrepreneurial standpoint, how do you get to the point where you can manage? all these pro- these projects and create all these opportunities for other people like what's the f- Well think about like? think about it. look around uh, you know Bill Gates doesn't build every computer uh, Jeff Bezos doesn't run every Amazon business and you just have to recognize and this was hard for me because um, there's 
the big thing for me was like when I started getting multiple units, I would have multiple chefs. So I would treat those chefs just the way I wanted to be treated when I was chef. Mm-hmm. Give them the space, give them the uh, opportunities, give them the revenue or the uh, the money to buy the best ingredients, get all this stuff. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm not the chef, and these guys were not me, and in the, you have to recognize your defining principles as a person. I am a worker bee. I am uh, able to take on responsibility. Not everyone can. And so I look at it, uh, the most dramatic thing in our business is say, the dishwasher. I could wash dishes. I don't want to wash dishes. That guy needs me. The dishwasher needs me. But I need him too. And so recognizing what people's roles are helps you recognize who can run this business and who doesn't necessarily want to open their own business. Maybe they have a wife and kids. They don't want the struggle of debt. They don't want the... Uh, all that comes with owning your own business, which is 24-7. Uh, you can be closed on Sunday, but you still have, I have 2,000 pieces of refrigeration that are running. They still need to operate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, so so recognizing uh, where we're best in our world, I'm pretty good at what I do. The dishwasher is really good at what he does. The guy who's running uh, ops for us who who can fix a refrigerator with his eyes closed, he's pretty good at what he does. Um you know, we all have our roles, and that's how you end up with multiple businesses, and that's how you end up growing is that you find the right people for those roles who want to be there, mm-hmm. who want to get up and show up with you every day. So, you know, when when you're going and doing things and you're becoming as successful as you are, getting the accolades as you are, you're attracting onto yourself people, you're recognizing their natural abilities, and you're basically just putting them, as Jim Collins would say, like on your – you know. In, on your bus, but in the right seat on your bus. Yeah, I never was afraid to hire someone more talented than me. Okay. I love talent. But I also hired someone who recognized those. I was not the best. I'm more, more the Peter Principal guy. I'm a loyalist to a fault. You, wait, uh, so you just said that you weren't the best, uh, even though you did win Best Chef Northwest. I mean, there's some. some I won a lot of awards. There. I've won Best Restaurant Tour in America. I won Best Americana Cookbook. I've won all sorts of awards. That doesn't make me good. I love. That's the point that I'm trying to make. I love the humility of the fact that you know, you've done, you've accomplished all these things, but you still know when somebody else has an edge on you and you're not afraid to get oh, out of the I way. Oh, I love it. I want to learn from them. That, why Absolutely. is that so important? Because that's how I've learned how to cook. Mm. I've never went to culinary school. I've learned from everyone I've ever worked with and I treasure it. Uh, you know, how many different cultures have come through my kitchens as uh, refugees throughout the world over the years, whether it's the Latins or the Vietnamese or the Sudanese or the, when the Cuban flotilla or the Russians or the Poles when they were uh, becoming a democracy. Uh, you know, we have had all these things through our kitchens. Uh, that's where it's a natural place to start. And I, I just love that. And I learned from every one of them. But going back to my, well, now I can't remember my point. So. Oh, sorry. If it comes back to you, let me yeah. know. So, um, Oh man, there's just so many potential directions we could go in right now. You have such a, a breadth of experience. Uh, what about failures? Have you ever had to close a restaurant? Sure, I could use closing a couple of them right now that are not doing so well. Okay, I've never had a failure in in a way that would take down the company uh, because I have enough successful restaurants to cover up for my mistakes. Um, but yeah, we've made some stupid moves. I, the biggest failure I had as a business person was forgetting to renew my lease. In oh. a proper time, so it cost me a half a million dollars. Ouch! <laughs> um, uh, we have closed a, a restaurant that I had a lovely Tibetan chef. She still works with us, and we opened a little lunch spot for her uh, called Ting Momo, uh, and she um, she's very gracious and she's just a beautiful person. And uh, I love this spot, but 
it just didn't work out financially. Yeah. Uh, she brought her family into work and uh, it just wasn't doing well enough to work out. And I took the opportunity to close that and expand another restaurant right next to it of mine that was doing great. So, Any learning opportunities from that experience? Listen. Okay, oh, that's what we were talking about, being a loyalist to a fault. I'm, I, I'm definitely guilty of the Peter Principle where I will n- not necessarily identify who's the best person for the next job. I, I think about how long they've been with me and how many years they have in and, uh, you know, and then next thing you know, you're putting someone in a place where they're not comfortable and you end up having to separate. So you're you know? looking at the loyal, their loyalty. So I hired somebody who's better at that than me. Okay. My partner is better at my, my working partner. So you're good at recognizing the strengths, but you're also, you, you, you weigh loyalty to you, you, way too much is what I'm hearing. Uh, not, not way too much, but it's definitely a fault, to a fault, whereas you end up putting the guy who's been with you for 10 years in a job instead of the person who's only been there two years, but, but they'd be better suited for the job. Got you. That is, they have a different talent. Okay. So one thing I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about or on before we move to the, the speed round is, I mean, you've been in the industry now for over 30 years. You've had extreme success. You've attracted onto yourself incredible people. Uh, the, the current state of the industry, uh, in your opinion, how would you, comp- how would you describe the current state of the industry compared to what it's been like in the past? I think it ebbs and flows. Uh, there's a couple of huge issues in our industry right now. Uh, one is um, uh, labor pool, right? Attracting young talent and young people to our industry, and I think that that's taken a few hits with the um, at the with the Me Too movement and with uh, uh, people like you know assholes like Gordon Ramsay on TV making our industry look like shit. Mm. Uh, who wants to go to cooking school? Who, who would want to go work for Gordon Ramsay? Uh, you know, with what he presents. I can't imagine he's that way personally, although I've talked to some people who work with him and, and he was a little bit like that personally. So, but, uh, yeah, I think he presents a bad face for our business. And that's one of the things that, that, um, that I, I don't like about where t- uh, cooking is on television. But what I will say is that, um, on the other side of that uh, is the, our industry and our, our profession is being valued more. And it's kind of a, it's almost counterintuitive, right? Because we're hearing more and more bad stuff out of the kitchens and blah, blah, blah. But cooks are making more money than they've ever made because there's a shortage of cooks, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Cooks are actually starting to get to a point to make a living wage, right? Waiters always have because they're on tips. And I I should say waiters in our type of restaurants. Coffee houses, I I really don't have a lot of experience. Okay. But but in fine dining, waiters make a bundle and they do good. Uh, and the cooks have always got the short end of that stick. And you're starting to see the value proposition more for cooks and chefs uh, to get a fair wage, uh, a, a living wage. And I love that. It's it's likely to put many of us out of business. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's okay. I uh, think it is okay. You know, I think, th- I think to kind of compound on what you're saying right now, there's too many restaurants in the industry. Um I, do you agree or disagree with that right now? Oh, well, I mean, it's business. It's capitalism. So, we'll, yeah. you know, the, the the market will decide that. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't really get that as the gist of your question. Like, are you concerned about... Well, I think, you know, the the status of the, the industry, I think there are more and more restaurants are opening. I think one of the reasons why is because retail is going away because retail can't survive anymore. Right, it's cost um, of entry to a restaurant is yeah. much cheaper. So as a result, developers are investing all this money into restaurant space because that's what's it's what works in that space right uh well not necessarily a okay. lot of it's code driven uh you know when you build a big building in, in downtown seattle that yeah. that street level floor has to be retail by code mm-hmm. uh so you got to find something to put in there and if you're 
if you can't find a, a, a national retailer, say, uh, you're going to give some young chef a couple hundred grand to do his build out. And yeah, but what happens in 10 years? And that's that's the question is, can he can he live in 10 years with that lease that he's going to have to pay? Yeah. One thing that comes up often on the show is what will, will happen is a lot of these GMs and sous chefs are being, you know, uh, bought out but not necessarily bought out but basically uh being snacked snagged up uh before they're almost ready because there's such a need right and you're seeing yeah that, but that's happening across a lot of categories so i mean every google's uh, building five buildings in downtown seattle right now amazon's mm-hmm. building a million and they all have cafeterias and i think the most interesting thing i've heard recently is the san francisco city council talking about making it a requirement that you're not allowed to build a cafeteria in a building anymore. You have to use the street. I heard that. And that's kind of interesting. I don't like it because I don't like city councils telling me how to run my business. Uh, our, our Seattle city council is famous for that. And I think they're a bunch of pinheads. Uh, but, um, but I, there's something tragic about uh, these, these corporations that are only inward thinking and are not, yeah, maybe they give a million dollars to the art museum, but they're not inward thinking about their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And it's tragic. And I gave a speech to the Facebook board about this, about getting out of your own head as I'm watching their cafeteria. It was in the cafeteria that they had just built where their employees could eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner and take home deli and have happy hour bar all day long, every day, seven days a week. And uh, the the little mom and pops on the on yeah. the streets are just dying. Yeah, and they're thinking to themselves, "Oh my God, they finally built a ten story building next to me. I'm going to be so busy." And you lose business. Yeah, it's really interesting what's happening. So out it's, there. that's uh, that I find some of the most uh, interesting and controversial when it comes to what's the future of our streets. Well, that's what I'm really curious about with all these restaurants opening and opening. I mean, there's going to be hit a we're going to hit a point where. Either we're going to go back to the old way where we're going to have to start cutting corners again because that's the only way we can get anything done. Yeah, Cisco's going to be very happy. Exactly. So, like, <laughs> how do we avoid the situation where we have to, like, you don't. get back to... People have dreams of opening their own business. Yeah. What's uh, what's viable will stick and what's not will go away. It's mm. just that's always been the nature of business and it's the nature of my business and it will be the nature for everyone coming behind me. Yeah. Uh, you can't have a state-subsidized restaurant industry, which is basically like rent control. I mean, there's been some of Seattle City Council people want rent control for businesses downtown. Yeah. They're the same ones that are forcing gridlock on our streets, right? They're the same ones that are letting hotels build uh, 150-room hotels with three parking spaces. They're the same ones who are taking our traffic lanes and putting bike lanes uh, on them. Now, I don't mind some bike lanes, but they want to put them all over the place and eliminate parking because they don't want cars downtown. I I don't know. It's it's a big <laughs> a it's a big uh, tragic mess that is not lost on any city in this world. If you go to London, they're having the same issues. Paris, uh, Tokyo is probably the only one who's not there. There seems to be so organized. There. Yeah. So one other thing, I, I one thing I was curious about is uh, that you, you do have partners again. So eventually, you got away from the partner. You were no, no. Sold. He's a working partner. He's okay. A, I made him a partner. Like uh, he's not a financial partner. Okay, so when I say uh, you're talking about the current partner that you have, the executive, yeah, Eric Tanaka, Eric, yeah, yeah. So he, if I, if we were to ever sell, he gets twenty five percent. Okay, okay, gotcha. Uh, and uh, he is a partner in so many ways. He's a terrific person, right? Uh, he's got the same uh, people values that, that that I do, and as my CEO does. Okay, uh, he's he's just uh, he's 
his job is to kind of run the restaurants and keep the keep them all going. Okay. So are you experiencing the same challenge with staffing right now? Oh, that, absolutely. So what are you doing? Uh, what have you done to uh, remain appealing to other people, to attract onto yourself the people you need to? It's a battle every day. Our city council has basically unionized the restaurant industry in town. Uh, and so, you know, they tell us how we can schedule people. They tell us how many sick days. They tell us, you know, all the stuff that, that used to come with unionization. And um, the biggest problem with that is that you end up with um, kind of um, odd odd ways of doing business. That, as an entrepreneur, it just strikes me weird. Like, for example, there's a, there's a group in town called the Office of Labor Standards. It's under the mayor's direction and the city council's direction. And, uh, you know, we were telling people if they – didn't call in sick or if they just no-showed without calling, that we're going to give you a warning. Well, you know what? We got fined by the city for doing wow. that. We're not allowed. You can no-call, no-show, and it's no problem in Seattle. And so we have often have days where three or four people just don't show up for work and then show up the next day. It's like, where were you? It's like, well, I was sick. Yeah, wow. So that's they collect just... their sick pay, and that's the other scam that's going on right now. Many of them, there's such a shortage of workers is that they're taking two and three jobs, and as long as you don't work for the same company, you can work extra hours. Yeah. Um, and so you get your automatic sick pay. So you're you're calling in sick here and getting paid, and you're now working over here and getting paid. Oh, man. And so there's a lot of that going on. And then the other thing that uh, is kind of crazy, which is kind of interesting, is that uh, right now when you're a waiter – when you call in sick, uh, you get your full shift pay, but you also get your average tips over the last three months, which we have to figure out. Which, what did you make on average per day over the last three months so I can figure out what to give you in tips today? So you're making your $50, $60 an hour, and if you happen to be in overtime, you're making $90 an hour. Uh, it's just it's a very interesting time. And you know, in our business, you can run a whole lunch for today. At my fanciest restaurant, the Dahlia Lounge, I could run a lunch today and not make $90. And they're making that per hour sick wow yeah there's some so it's uh, interesting issues. you know it's like it's a it's a whole new way yeah. uh, of all the years i've been in business 29 years now and this is the first year that uh there's a likely chance that we're not going to make money uh, and i've only averaged six percent over my entire career so i don't even know how to respond to that yeah um it's crazy uh and a very up economy yeah, yeah. one other thing i did want to bring up or to I wanted to make an example of you uh, going back to this idea of compassionate uh, capitalism. You do a lot for your community, uh, whether it's using your radio show to uh, raise money to donate uh -huh. or you're part of what's happening with the overfishing in mm -hmm. uh, Alaska. Anti-pebble mine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you want to take – Food lifeline. Do you want to take My any of the, the short time we have together left uh, to, to address the, the impact of – or the responsibility of yeah. being compassionate and why we should be more compassionate? I think I did in the beginning of your show a little bit, uh, which is just – it's being part of the village. And I've always felt like I want to be a pillar in my community. If I'm just scraping the cream off the top, and there's plenty of people that do, mm -hmm. then fuck you. I don't have time for you. Uh, I want to be a pillar. I want to, of course I want to make a profit. I want to be rich just like the next guy wants to be rich. But if that's at the cost of you, then I'd, it's not worth it to me, mm -hmm. right? So uh, that has always been our, our way. It's been my way. Uh, it is, um, I don't know where it came from. My family never had enough money to donate to anybody. So I don't know where that comes from, but I do feel a sense of fairness in that way. And I'm a fair person. Um, you could ask any one of my people, uh, thousand strong, if I'm a fair person. There's nobody I've ever screwed in our company. I don't mean that way. Uh, and <laughs> uh, but you know, I'm just I'm just not like that. Okay. So uh, so 
I've always felt like uh, with Food Lifeline in particular, that's my our biggest charitable event, and we give them millions uh, over the years, uh, millions of dollars, and raised more than that. We raised, oh, easily $50 million over the year for them. Uh, I've always felt like uh, I'm so thankful for those of us that can walk through my front doors and at the, of the restaurants. But it doesn't let me off the hook for those who can't. Mm-hmm. And so it's our way of evening out uh, that discrepancy in people's incomes and values uh, and lack of income uh, to a more sustainable future. Yeah. And uh, man, there, there's so much just uh, changing, I think, in the industry right now. People seeing this and uh, the we're learning so much about the, the human mind right now, too, mm-hmm. about how we're hardwired to where does compassion come from? I think mm-hmm. it's part of our our instincts to to care for others so they'll they'll care for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you give, if you take care of others, they'll take care of you. I think it's kind of ingrained into us, and I think that's shown uh, through your the history of your restaurant group. Uh, you're taking care of your community, and they're taking care of you. And, and you think it, one of the reasons why you're so successful is because of that compassion, that that interest to take care of other people. Well, there's uh, no doubt. I was out cooking salmon for three thousand people last Friday. Uh, at a cancer a fund, uh, the Fred Hutch, which is a cancer research organization here in Seattle, very famous. Uh, and, uh, you know, they raised uh, a couple million bucks that day. But uh, standing out there over the Applewood Grills for eight hours cooking filet of salmon, uh, so many people came up to the railing and just wanted to say thanks for being there and thanks for doing what you do. And um, I'm humbled and grateful, uh, and I thanked every one of them back for showing up and buying the ticket, right? Taking the bike ride, raising money for this cause because it takes all of us. I could sit there and cook salmon all day, but if nobody bought those tickets, you know, which is their hard earned cash doing things for the community with that cash. And so it it just takes, it goes back to it. It takes a village and I'm all about the village. How have you transformed over the past 30 years? Who are you today versus who you were 30 years ago? (laughs) Aside from that, (laughs) Uh, who am I today that I wasn't 30 years ago? Um, you know, I'm the same dude. I, it's hard to change your spots. I really do believe that. And so when you have an employee who's troublesome, right, and you keep thinking they're, they're going to change their spots, they're going to learn this, we're going to put them on a PIP, a performance improvement plan. It's hard. Mm. It's really difficult. And that's why um, it doesn't often work out. Mm-hmm. And then you have to separate and have that conversation that, you know, this just might not be the right spot for you. And from what I see, maybe this is a better path for you to take. And uh, those are difficult discussions, but they're very necessary. And honestly, the worst thing you can do is fire someone. Mm-hmm. And I think for that person and for yourself, because you feel like a failure and they, for the rest of their life, will have that little dark spot on their in their memory bank. And not like they're going to be grudgeful. Well, some are. But... They failed, mm-hmm. and I failed by not being able to put them in the right job at the right time, and it's not so. It's just not good. So that's something that um, we try to stay away from. Yeah, this has been an incredible first half or first uh, part flow of the the interview. You've been crushing it. Thank you so much. We're gonna take a quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right. Your back. job as a restaurant owner or manager is to paint a picture of the job done right and to empower your employees with the tools and knowledge they need to excel. This is why you need to check out Wisetail, a premier learning management system trusted by our industry's most recognized names. With Wisetail, quickly 
scale your training initiatives across all locations, empower your employees to take control of their own learning and professional growth, foster communication and engagement through their integrated training and communication tools, and ensure long-term scalable success with the help of their best-in-breed client experience team. They'll take you from goal-setting and implementation to ongoing strategy and best practices training to make sure you maximize your ongoing investment in your training and your programs. And if you use my links, you'll get your first three months free after signing up for a year contract. Again, that's wisetail.com slash unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. Finally, a simple, affordable, and legal way to share the music that best represents your brand. It's called Soundtrack Your Brand. Get access to soundtracks tailored for any business. Side note, studies have shown that playing the right music can impact your sales. Do you have questions about what that right music is? Soundtrack Your Brand can help you there too. Here's a fun fact. I'm sure a lot of you out there listening to this already have a Spotify account. Well, you can take playlists from your account and import them directly into SoundtrackYourBrand.com. And my guests are always saying on the show that their restaurants are an extension of their own personal brand. Well, so isn't your music. And now you can marry these things together legally. Unlike Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Music, Soundtrack Your Brand is licensed for business use. Skip the hassle of ASCAP and BMI because with Soundtrack Your Brand, it's already included. You can even schedule music for the whole week and adapt the music for each day part. Typically, this deal goes for $26.99 per month, but if you act now before the end of August, you can get this deal for $19.99 per location per month for life. Again, that's SoundtrackYourBrand.com or find the banner in the show notes. We're back. The first question I have for you is, what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Effort. What is your biggest weakness? I would say it's probably my age at this moment in time. You know, and getting to that point where you're looking at your leases and thinking, do I want to do this for another five more years? Yeah. Am I that? Uh, it just so happens that my my daughter, my daughter, who's a lawyer, uh, gave up the law practice and became our general counsel a few months ago. And okay, uh, so I might not be closing all the restaurants. Who knows? Interesting. <laughs> uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team? I would go back to the village. I ask everyone to be part of the village and to be respectful of each other as a, as our own community and then in turn be respectful to our customers. Okay. Uh, what is your biggest challenge today? Labor. How are you dealing with it? Uh, we have <laughs> – we actually started a line cook school at our at our hot stove society, which is a social cooking school, right? It's the kind of place where you sign up. Let's do masa. Let's be a masa master and you sign up for a two-hour class on working with masa. So – it's a social school, but the facility is there 24 hours a day. So we've started line cook school. So we hire younger, greener cooks and then train them ourselves, give them knife skills, butchering skills, um, prep skills, teach them how to wash dishes up there. We have you know, a dishwasher set up. And so I think taking on some of that responsibility ourselves yeah. is kind of interesting. I think that's one thing that's really uh, – Service standard it, skills. Yeah. you know, I think we're, we're also kind of expecting people to come to us today like already trained. And we don't, we're not willing as, as willing as we used to be to train people. Uh, well, and I think more people would be willing to be trained too if they didn't spend 50 or 100 grand on culinary school and come out to a $17 an hour job. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't pencil. I really do think the the way the 
the future looks like a lot more apprentices uh, going out there. It's way more affordable. Uh, like people are willing to teach because there's such a, a need for people right now. And I, whenever anybody ever comes to me and they, they ask about culinary school, I'm like, just work in the industry. Make sure you love it. Uh, you, you might not need to, to make that investment. If you want to, after maybe 10 years of working or five years to like get that, you know, that monkey off your back, if you feel like you need to do it, then go for it. But do you think people need to go to culinary school today? Well, I have a lot of friends that teach at culinary school, so I think that they do a good job. And I'm not trying to be careful so much as I'm trying to say, uh, you can come out of, depending on your motivation, you can come out of culinary school. Some of them now have a four-year degree, so you've got your diploma, which is a good thing to have. Um, Do I think people need a two-year culinary program? Probably not. I think you could learn on the job. It's certainly a more rounded education. Uh, Do I think that uh, if you went to a more focused culinary program, like a baker's uh, program at a community college that is a two-year program on baking where you learn the science and you can come out and go to either one of the big massive bakers or you can open your own bakery that's a skill that is taught and you'd probably have to spend at least a couple of years if not longer in somebody else's bakery to learn mm-hmm. um, but you know any of those skills schools they don't yeah. always teach you about compassion with your coworkers. Mm-hmm. they don't teach you necessarily about how to run your books some do yeah, um, or just the reality. How to of the not work. cheat? You yeah. know, cheat on your taxes. Mm-hmm. Give you standards to live by. Uh, those are kind of things you have to learn from other people. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you for getting into that. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is like a core value, a way to be. Yeah, it's just it goes back to respect. I swear, to, uh, when if I ever see another cook throw a pan in the dish hole and, and without saying, with just throwing it number one, and then without saying, could you please. Uh, clean this up or any of that kind of thing. Um, just respect mm-hmm. that, that conversation across the line with the waiters, you know, the cooks know the waiters are making four times what they are making in a hot, sweaty kitchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's difficult sometimes. Yeah, I can imagine. And so just go be a waiter. Mm-hmm. If that's what you want to do, go be a waiter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, just have that, uh, that respect for each other. What's one uncommon standard of service you teach your team. That's not standard within the industry, but standard within your four walls. <laughs> uh, there is none. There's no secrets. Uh, I, I can't think of one thing that we do other than empowering them to be the best they can be. Uh, one of the things that I wish that more restaurant groups would do, especially the big chains, the, the big chains that are on the stock exchange, you know, in our restaurants, we serve over 20,000 free staff meals a day. It is important. Wow. And you go to a Applebee's or someplace like that, and they're charging their crew 50% off the menu price or uh, for the, you know, I'm just saying. Take care of your team. Uh, I would say that there's staff meal in many, many restaurants. I don't think it's an uncommon thing, but I do think, uh, you know, if you want a cup of coffee, th- that relationship by giving them that coffee or by sitting down together and eating a meal before service is super important. Absolutely. What is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant operator? Uh, maybe start with your favorite cookbook. Get a sense and a flavor of who that, who that cook is. Mm-hmm. I remember reading uh, Barbara Tropp's China Moon Cookbook. And uh, I was already in love with the restaurant, and I bought the book there, and Barbara signed it for me. And I got to know her over the years. Um, but that was an inspiration. And I would say just getting inspired to be the best cook you can be is a super awesome thing. I love it. Uh, share an online resource or tool you use. 
Well, I design a lot of restaurants, and I, you know, all restaurants need remodels and new equipment. So I end up using Big Tray the most online because they've got the specs for every stove and every refrigerator, and I can because I do my own drawings from my restaurants. I'm the I'm the designer, and okay. so when I lay out a kitchen, it's just nice to have uh, access to all the the cut sheets for every piece of equipment out there that I need, and then I can just place everything in place and know if it fits or works or what your turn is like, your pivot motion, access to the dish hole. All that sort of thing. Was that called a bit tray? Big tray. Big tray. B I G tray. Yeah. Gotcha. Thank you. Uh, what is one piece of technology you've adopted in your restaurants that it has influenced operations, communications, efficiency, profitability, things of that <laughs> nature? Well, sadly enough, uh, we've gone all the way from our crafty homemade signs to all video screens, and it's it's helpful not only for the employee because now they're not stressed about their handwriting looking correct or whatever, but you know, we're in the middle of Amazon country right here, and they respond. Our business went up 20% just with video screens over the – we have this cool Canon printer that prints a poster three feet wide to infinity length long. Wow. And we were loving it, loving it, loving it. We loved all how homemade it looked and how artsy and crafty it looked. And then we put up the video screens uh, because we were struggling getting them done and help business. So when you talk about video screens, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Are we talking about menus? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah, mostly menus. Are you using them in other any other fashion, uh, like marketing, displaying? Oh, like yeah, that? of course. Yeah, picture of a falafel waffle with uh, 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 feta stuffed beets and uh, tzatziki is, does a lot more than just saying falafel waffle on a menu, right? So, yeah. Uh, it's yeah, they're they're awesome. So, are you using video and uh, the the tablets too, or is it just no, not so much. Okay, not so much. Other than at the host stands, and uh, who are you using? Who are you going through to to service your your restaurants? You mean for video screens? Yeah, we do our own. Okay, so just, the, we have a marketing team that is fluent in that. Okay, so um, digital signage essentially is what you're. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so this is the last question. Are you ready for it? Here's here's when going back to that one bit, and this most frustrating thing is open table has become uh, undeniable in its power. It's so freaking expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm frustrated. I used to go to Office Depot and buy a buy a red book for eight dollars and write in my reservations when people called, and now <laughs> I spend at the Dolly we spend three grand a month on wow. reservations alone. So. Well, are you looking at any other platform like Resi or, or Reserve? Yeah, we did. We tried Resi, and it just didn't work out for us. Okay. So. What about Reserve? Have you checked them out? Tried it. What were the issues in those two? Just not. It's not the usage uh, through the consumer isn't widespread enough. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's the solution? Is there one? I think it's a little bit like the to-go solution. You have to have an iPad for every delivery company, and I think reservation-wise, uh, the solution is probably having multiple screens, and um, then then compiling those as they come in. Okay, interesting. Uh, Thanks for going into that. So this is the last question. You ready for it? If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Well, you know, I just had my 30th or 60th birthday uh, this last week. And I just last night had the third of three different surprise parties by different groups. Uh, one was my staff team. One was, uh, you know, we did a summer camp for years, su- uh, summer culinary camp, the Tom Douglas Summer Culinary. And all the alumni got together and oh, wow. surprised me with a dinner that they all cooked and they were so excited to cook. And uh, and then last night, the boys that I play golf with and drink a lot of fancy red wine with. And um, it came to me out of there what having friends through this business 
uh, and meeting people and treating them gracefully and graciously uh, really pays off for my own soul. At the end of the day, you know, while they reaped some of those rewards, I get just as much back. And recognizing that uh, the return on effort, the return on graciousness is really just uh, makes for a better life. Uh, so I would say that's that's one word, grace. Uh, respect is one that's come up throughout our conversation today. And community, being uh, an s- integral part of your community, not just a hanger-on, not just somebody who's sucking it dry, but being there uh, when chips are down uh, is awesome. Grace, respect, and community. Tom Douglas, this has been an, an amazing conversation. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. Uh, I've loved every moment of this. We wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who's one independent operator, somebody you admire uh, and believe would make a great guest mentor like you've made for us today? Well, there's a guy named Kurt Dammeyer in town who's a, a, I'm on his board of, uh, of his company, but um, he's got a few restaurants now. Uh, he started a company called Beecher's Cheese uh, in the Pike Place Market. It's, he's turned that in from a little cheese shop to now a $50 million cheese company nationwide. Uh, he wanted a better quality beef, so he bought cattle, and he feeds them a different way, and he's now got a, a place called the Butcher's Table with these fancy, fancy cattle. He's got 10,000 head of cattle now. Wow. Uh, it's It's rare to find somebody as wealthy as he is. He's one of the original investors in Amazon. Uh, it's rare to find somebody like that to still have the passion uh, for the artisanal quality of some of the things that uh, we're enjoying now, his cheese, his beef. And now he's just uh, starting a, a thing called, I want to uh, think it's called Sound Solution. Uh, part of the pro, uh, proceeds from his cheese company go into teaching kids about additives to food and, and eating clean food. And he is trying to use the Puget Sound as a as a test tube for teaching adults now this very same thing about eating clean and having the need to eat clean force the marketplace to offer clean. Yeah. And so I, I think he's an interesting cat. Was that Kirk or Kurt? Kurt. Kurt. Kurt Dammeyer. Look out, Kurt. I'm coming after you. And, I, you know, I agree with you that uh, I think that's the solution is getting out there, educating, sharing knowledge, whether it be about how to eat or whether it be how to run a business and take and treat your people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I'm here to do is to, to make an example of people like you, to share your knowledge and to paint that picture of what it should be or what it could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you again for taking this time to allow me to make an example of you. Uh, how can we connect if uh, we want to follow your work or maybe come join your team? Well, of course, our radio show is on podcast every week. It's more of a social radio show uh, at uh, seattlekitchen.com. And then also uh, tomdouglas.com. Is, uh, you can find out about all of our different businesses. And maybe win a prize, come to Dumpling Fest or Baconopolis or the Cookbook Social. We have lots of ways to come. Uh, we're big believers in the $20 ticket, uh, which we feel lets our events uh, be open to all people. And then come socialize. Uh, I'm very fond of watching the promenade uh, at a farmer's market where people are just arm in arm and enjoying the nature's bounty, Mm. whether they're buying anything or not. And that's the kind of events I like to produce where people can just come and be part of an interesting food experience. So. I love it. And I'll link to those uh, websites in the show notes. Uh, just head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash Tom Douglas, Douglas, D-O-U-G-L-A-S. Tom, again, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. And I do love a good chicken catch tour. Yeah, who doesn't? <laughs> 
There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Tom Douglas, man, how do you even begin to summarize a conversation like that? I think the big takeaways in this conversation, the first one that comes to mind, obviously, compassionate capitalism. You need to exist to serve everybody who touches your restaurant, those in your business and outside of your business, including your community and your investors. And uh, really, you know, don't do anything that sacrifices the integrity of those, the business uh, that, that touch your business is kind of what I get from that. And uh, having that that integrity and standing by that integrity will serve you in the long run. Also, some really great advice on partnerships. Uh, early on, you know, $50,000 doesn't really come that easily when you're just getting started. And when people give you this money and they are your partners and they're 50% partners, uh, you got to remember how much you needed these people five, 10 years down the line when $50,000 seems like a drop in the bucket and you're giving 50% of everything you earn to these people and you you got to remember where you were. Don't lose sight of that and, and just hold on to that and take care of the people that took care of you and work it into your partnership agreements, uh, those, those buyout deals. I mean... It, Early on, it might seem a little weird talking about that kind of stuff, but you got to you got to protect yourself and your investors, and really projecting all the expenses that come along. Uh, you know, that was another great piece of advice. Uh, triple net—that's the first time we've ever talked about being aware of triple net and things like that. And I think the other big piece of advice uh, that came from this conversation when it comes to scaling is really a big part of it boils down to recognizing roles uh, and. Putting people in the right roles and not just people who have the skills, but people who want the responsibility and, and want those roles is a big part of scaling. So great advice there as well. And man, just so grateful to have sat with such incredible people in Seattle. Again, Tom Douglas, thank you so much for sharing your time and mentorship. And uh, like always, guys, please do reach out to me, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com, Instagram, Twitter, Eric Cacciatore, and Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me how I can best serve you. I'm here to go to work for you. So whatever challenges you're having, whatever pain points you're experiencing, put them on my radar. I can't go to work for you if I don't know where the pain is. Keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. They help so much with getting ranked at the top, which means the show gets discovered which means i can continue to do what i do so if you've left one of those reviews i cannot thank you enough uh and i'm also on spotify and google play now so if those are your jams you can check me out over there uh that is a great way to support this podcast but the best way to support this podcast is simply by sharing it the mission of this podcast is to inspire empower and transform our industry and we can't do that unless people know about this podcast. So I'm out there. I'm, I'm getting the content. I'm finding the mentors. I'm putting these lessons in front of you. I need your support. If we're going to transform this industry for the better, we need to share this content. We need to make sure other people have access to it. So do me a favor. If you're listening to this and you found value in this episode, share it. If you're on your phone right now, do a screen capture of the the, the page, if whatever player you're on. And share it to Instagram and tag me, Eric Cacciatore, E-R-I-C-C-A-C-C-I-A-T-O-R-E, so I can thank you personally. All right, guys, that's all for today. Thanks for sticking around this long. I love you all. Until next time, peace out.